Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to another podcast of Talking Talking Therapy with uh, Marvin Goldfried and my colleague and friend, Alan Francis. Hi, Marvin. Alan Francis. So we were, Alan and I were talking about, well, what, what do you think would be of interest to the viewers? And he came up with a smart topic. Not that it's a rare thing that you do, but you do every once in a while come up with something that's very good. I mean, it's usually good, but very good. And that was, why do treatments fail? And I think it's an interesting topic because if you read the research literature, very rarely do treatments fail. And um, because the treatments fail, you probably can't get the paper published. So you get a, a kind of a slanted view where the assumption is therapy will always work. But we know, all of us who do therapy uh, or supervise therapy, that it, that it doesn't. So we decided we would introduce a topic, why, why therapy fails. Uh, and today would be kind of the first episode uh, where we would explore the possibility that it has something to do with the misdiagnosis or uh, poor case formulation. So let's start with you, Alan, about diagnosis, wrong diagnosis. I don't know how much we'll agree on this, but you're Mr. Diagno you're Mr. DSM-4, whether you like it, like it or not. Yeah, I've been one of the harshest critics of the DSM system. I know it best, so I can find all its flaws. Some people think that you shouldn't have diagnosis at all. The, the British Psychological Society has advocated just getting rid of all diagnosis and go straight to formulation. Um, let's imagine what the problems are the person's having emotionally. Who cares about the diagnosis? And I think that's clearly wrong. And I think that it, it's particularly important that psychotherapists, um, even if that's not their, even if diagnosis is not their major interest, that they know diagnosis because there are certain things that are egregious mistakes that are made over and over again that I've seen hundreds of times in my career. The, the first is missing a medical illness. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how many hundreds of patients I've seen over the uh, 50 years I was involved in practice, how many patients presented with emotional problems? I was involved in treating them psychotherapeutically and then figured out along the way or other people figured out along the way that there's a basic medical problem that was underlying their symptoms. Uh, my first patient on the uh, inpatient unit at the Psychiatric Institute, who I was treating for conversion symptoms, turned out to have a brain tumor. 
So that really mm-hmm. stuck with me that I would always be looking for. And I think everyone always has to look for possible brain involvement or, or, or systemic medical problems that can be causing the issue. Well, I, 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 I think we may end up disagreeing on certain aspects of diagnosis because I'm not too keen on diagnosis. However, the point that you are making is something that I really haven't considered. So if you're saying a um, diagnosis of a psychological problem versus a diagnosis of a medical problem, I mean, obviously, who can, who can disagree with that? Thank, thank you, Marvin. I'm going I'm to say a bunch of things that I'm forced you to agree with me on. The second thing is medication side effect. Whenever a person has a new emotional symptom, the first thought should be what medicines are they on? Because almost every medicine can cause emotional or behavioral changes that are easily confused with psychiatric problems. And particularly in elder people who are taking very often an average of five or six medicines a day, whenever there's a new symptom in an elderly person, the first thought should be this is medication side effect until proven otherwise. Do you want to disagree with that? No. Or dehydration side effect. Well, that would be part of the first thing, the uh, medical problems. Yes. yes. So we're always going to be thinking, and, and this is, again, you can't really do good psychotherapy unless you're thinking, possibly this is a medical problem, possibly this is a medication side effect. We, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that when, when there's no clear explanation for a symptom, that it's psychological. So we've, we're learning that now a lesson we should have learned way, way in the past with COVID-19 causes brain fogging, causes loss of energy. It's very easy when people don't understand the cause of these symptoms to think that they're psychiatric as a default diagnosis. This is a psychiatric problem. It's all in your head. Go see a psychotherapist. But very often there may be an unexplained medical problem that's at the root of it. Now in young people, Always think first of drugs. Think of what I miss that. Of drugs. Drugs. Uh-huh. Drugs are alcohol. Alcohol in older people, drugs in younger people. That substances in the intoxication state or the withdrawal state can mimic all sorts of psychiatric problems. And so we're, we're going to be thinking with every patient, medical problem first, medication side effect, medication withdrawal, There's like a lot of medications on withdrawal, including the psychiatric medications, have symptoms. And we're going to be thinking about drugs and alcohol. That should be part of the differential diagnosis. If you don't have to be trained in medical school to at least be thinking about this. And it's not a bad idea for many patients to have a consultation with their GP to see if there's a medical cause. And for people, all the people involved in the care to be thinking about medication side effects. Well, there's another interesting factor, too, which, which is not as easy to detect. If somebody's taking antidepressants and for some reason they have missed several instances where they've taken it but have not told you, but only tell you of the symptomatology, um, you know, that becomes a major, major problem. So, it, you know, the, the adherence they, they may, to, to the They may medication. think they're getting worse, and you may think they're getting worse. Yeah. Based on their life experience or the psychology or something happening in the therapy, but it can be as simple as they've raised their dose or reduced their dose, and that's causing the symptoms. Yes. 
Okay. Now, within the, the manual itself, there's also room for confusion that can lead to a treatment failing. And in my experience... When you say manual, excuse me, is that in caps with, with flashing yeah. lights? Yeah. In other words, like once we've gotten past the medical problems and the substance problems, let's think about the, the other differential diagnostic decisions that are made and the typical kinds of mistakes that lead to the wrong psychotherapy not working. Before we get there, can I just add an addendum to, to some of the other things that um, sleep deprivation Perfect. is something that often goes unnoticed and all, all kinds of problems associated with that. Perfect. And also sleeping pills. Um, yeah. The, the combination of trouble sleeping and sleeping pills can lead to the widest variety of seemingly primary psychiatric presentations that are really due to, to that combination. The, the most common, I think, diagnostic error in, in my experience is a psychotherapy that's working on a complex personality issue bringing up all sorts of experiences in the past and the present and missing the simple thing that need that really needs to be treated first. Uh, the most common example are people who have like specific phobias. And mm -hmm. if the diagnosis isn't made that the, the basic problem here is a specific phobia or social phobia, and that that's leading to secondary problems, it's very easy to get involved in long-term uncovering therapy for personality change and miss the boat that the simple thing needs to be dealt with first. If you can deal with the simple thing, you're not maybe not going to need the, um, the more uncovering psychodynamic therapy. The dealing with the straightforward problem is often enough, and not dealing with it often means that whatever else you're doing is going to be fairly meaningless. Sometimes that... It's very hard to detect. For example, I remember seeing somebody, a woman who um, they were in financial straits and the husband was avoiding uh, getting a job. This was in Long Island. And most of the jobs were in uh, New York City. And he was just avoiding, avoiding. It turns out he was phobic of elevators. And it was it went unnoticed. And that was creating all kinds of relational problems and financial problems and everything that goes goes with it. So um, I get, I'm not quite sure if that is an issue of poor diagnosis or poor case formulation. And maybe that's not important. Yeah, I think it, it, there are many problems that are often missed. You've already mentioned sleep problems as being the underlying cause of what looks like a complicated situation and dealing with the specific problem first is most important, eating disorders. Patients are usually more, in my experience, usually more embarrassed about describing their symptoms of eating disorder than describing their sexual life. And many people will enter into a psychotherapy hiding the fact that the thing that's really driving them nuts is the fact that they're vomiting after every meal and that they're terribly embarrassed about it and they can't speak about it to anyone else. And lots of secondary behaviors are the result of trying to hide the eating disorder, unless the eating disorder is diagnosed and that becomes the first target of treatment, the rest of the treatment is really hiding from it and, and not making it better.
At the risk of going off on a bit of a tangent, let me ask you a question here. Would you consider that to be comorbidity or would you consider that to be case formulation? Who cares? Well, I, I think, no, I think it's important because some people think of comorbidity and then they say, we're not quite sure which, which of the problems to treat first without realizing that there's an inherent case formulation that's needed. That if one problem is driving another, to say comorbidity doesn't, doesn't give you information about the directionality of the two problems. Well, I'm not sure we need to spend too much time on this today, but DSM is a splitter system. Yes. It has tons of diagnoses, dividing the diagnostic pie into tiny, tiny slices, and then giving very specific definitions. So this resulted in a, a kind of fad of comorbidity, concern about comorbidity. I think that people need to realize that multiple diagnoses don't mean multiple different causes. That very often what we call comorbidity is just slicing the complex problems into little slices but they may all have a common underlying cause and they may all be treated with the same treatment. We shouldn't think that, oh, we have to treat the panic disorder with this, the agoraphobia with that, the depression with that, that these are three separate problems. But this is, this is a question that, that I've seen beginning therapists. Which manual should I use? Yeah, I think, I think main, it's important to make the diagnoses, but not to see them as discrete aspects in, in, in the natural world. These are ways we've labeled people. And by having a system with very, very narrow diagnoses, human beings being very complex, it's very common for people to satisfy the criteria for several of these diagnoses. That doesn't mean they have three separate problems. It means that we've defined these separate problems out of a complex whole, but we should look at all of the problems in the mix as, as very often being related to one another mm -hmm. and then try to figure out in the formulation, the diagnosis is to name them. The formulation is to try to figure out which do we address first and what order and, and what's gonna be the most efficient way of dealing with a complex problem. What's the best avenue inward? I think That's another right. diagnosis that's frequently missed is panic disorder. That people having panic attacks often begin avoiding all sorts of social and, and other situations in their life. Uh, often, not often, but can lead to agoraphobia. They get depressed about themselves. They worried about, they're worried about going crazy. They get secondarily demoralized. And I think demoralization is a very important secondary effect of many diagnoses important in the formulation. The panic attack itself is very easy to treat and very treatable. The secondary effects can be ter terrible for the person's life. And very often missing the panic attack that started the whole uh, snowball rolling downhill means that you're addressing the peripheral things that are much less important and missing the central issue. <clears throat> so I guess the general point I'm making is that people who say we don't have to worry about psychiatric diagnosis, that each person is completely the same, completely individual, and the psychiatric diagnosis is an artificial labeling process that just does them harm. Yeah. I disagree strongly. I think that I don't trust clinicians who worship the DSM. I don't trust clinicians who only do DSM interviews and only know about diagnosis and don't understand formulation and don't understand the uh, tools of psychotherapy. But I equally distrust clinicians who say, oh, diagnosis doesn't matter. Every patient is a fresh experience. 
I think that diagnosis is important to see how people are like other people and formulation is important to see how they're individual and, and specific. Yeah. And the combination of diagnosis and formulation works either alone is going to be crippled and not helpful. Do you think that there are therapists who say every patient is a fresh experience? That's very frightening. Would you go to a physician who says, I don't base anything that I do based on knowledge that I have about anything that's similar to what you have. It's a fresh experience. I mean, that would scare the hell out of me. Yeah. But I think, I think that it's well-meaning usually. It's like, I don't want to label you because that's going to be stigmatizing you. That's going to be putting you yeah. in bed. I'm going to experience you in the fullness of your own individual experience. That, that's terrible clinical attitude. It's equally terrible to just think of people as DSM categories. He's a schizophrenic. He, he's a, a bipolar. I hate the terminology that someone has a disorder. I much prefer they meet criteria for a disorder because that makes clear that this is a definitional issue. It doesn't define who the person is. Well, let me ask you, well, I don't know how much we should get into DSM because that's a whole other ball of wax and that can go in so many different directions. Um, but my sense is that it's, it's been arbitrary. I, I remember, I go way back, so I have DSM, period, a little thin booklet, of D, which essentially was in the 50s. And it was a joke. Nobody paid attention to it. Uh, and I guess, you know, reimbursement from an insurance companies uh, uh, got us to pay attention. <laughs> it, they, ma they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. <laughs> yeah, I remember. And, and maybe we should just do today on DSM and diagnosis. And yeah, I don't think we're, we're going to get to these formulations. For formulation. No, because this is yeah, too, this it, is too if interesting. You to, if you went to a cocktail party in New York and 1978, everyone would be talking about their dreams. And my analyst said this, and he, he thinks that I have this particular complex and these defenses. By 1981, everyone was diagnosing everyone using the DSM. And when we worked on it, we didn't expect it to be a bestseller. It, it just flew. The sales just uh, completely astounded us. And it was clear that people weren't, the clinicians could never account for all the sales of the DSM that they were being bought by people just to find out about themselves, by lawyers, by um, administrators, and that it gained a power well beyond anything we thought it would have and way more than it deserves. So anyone who thinks that DSM is a Bible really overestimates its value greatly. It's a clinical guide. It's useful in its place and harmful when it's misused in situations where it's given much more credence than it deserves. But without a diagnosis, whether it's DSM or ICD, you didn't get reimbursed. Yeah, and that's a real problem because, and this is, I think, a central problem for psychotherapy, that lots of people present with problems in life which require psychotherapy. It was a great mistake that psychotherapy got so closely tied to medical diagnosis and that insurance companies jumped on this and require a, a, a medical diagnosis in order to get psychotherapy. And the tragedy of that is that it, it leads to tremendous overdiagnosis. 
that in order to get paid, many patients are given a label that really isn't a good description of their problem. But if they don't have that medical diagnosis, there won't be reimbursement. Yeah. My favorite yeah. diagnosis is always adjustment disorder. If people could get paid for that, it was the best way of not stigmatizing individuals who were at the borderland between worries of everyday life and mild mental disorder. Right. And remember what it was called before adjustment disorder? Adjustment reaction. Even better. Well, no, worse as far as reimbursement, because it wasn't a disorder. But better, but, in, but better in making your point. Yeah, better in, in, in not stigmatizing people who are having emotional problems. In my world, you should be able, if I were in charge of public health and public mental health in America, I would have it be that every person could have six evaluation sessions or six brief therapy sessions, whatever they're called, without having a, a mental disorder diagnosis. That most of the patients you see who present in an average practice, these aren't the severely ill people who have clear psychiatric disorder, but, but many of the people who present in an average everyday practice would do better if they didn't have an official diagnosis, that the system would be useful for the ways I've mentioned before. But giving people a, an official diagnosis now often condemns them to medication. You yeah. go to a primary care doctor, you're feeling bad that week, you had suffered a loss at work or a romantic disappointment. If he wants to get you out of the office quickly, he has to do two things. One, to get paid, he has to give you a mental disorder diagnosis. And two, to get you out of the office happy, he has to give you a prescription for medication. Right. And so we have 12% of our population in America on antidepressant. And a few, there are certainly people who need antidepressants, but that shouldn't be 12% of the population. By over-medicalizing the problems of everyday life, by not doing psychotherapy first, many of these problems, psychotherapy should be the first intervention. Instead, we force people, to, doctors to give a, a medical diagnosis, and then we make it easy for them, insurance companies make it easy for them to give a pill, hard for them to spend careful time in evaluation and time enough to determine whether the medicine's necessary, whether advice, normalization, and psychotherapy wouldn't be a better a better way of going. So I'm worried both about underdiagnosing psychiatric problems, missing the ones we talked about at the beginning, but I'm also worried about overdiagnosing the problems of everyday life as mental disorders, medical problems requiring a medical treatment. I had a sneaky suspicion that once we started talking about diagnosis, yeah. we would be very hard to, to get away from that. I mean, tell me, Marvin, what it's been like in your practice, because you. Well, here's, so here's the weird thing. Um, I've, I've always felt to be pretty much of a hypocrite because I teach students that psychotherapy is a, essentially a relearning process. It's not a disease. And then I fill out the DSM diagnosis or the ICD diagnosis. And, and people have said, how could you do both? Well, it's like, well, it's, it's the nature of the world. Um, there was a time prior to the 80s when the research did not use diagnosis, that we use much more specific kinds of clinical issues like perfectionism or lack of assertiveness. Uh, and we would, we would do research on that 
and very, very important research, which of course gets lost, a public speaking anxiety. The research gets lost because it's not keyed under a diagnosis, but these were groundbreaking. And then it was in the 80s that there was a shift in the philosophy at the NIMH and it became much more medically oriented. And who were the bad, who were the villains in that piece? Um, I don't remember. It was in the 80s. Whoever was in partly, charge. Partly you and me, Marvin. Me? I wasn't yeah. a villain. You're the doctor. I'm not. No, no, no. We, we were at fault in a way because we were part of the committee that was. Oh, yes. The- right. Well, we had to. It was handed down to us. Well, uh, we were just following orders, right? <laughs> Whoa. Yes. Actually, well, no, this. Oh, gosh. This is. I, I just tweeted something. Um, the other day, you talk about going off on tangents. Let's let's do this, and maybe we should just stop talking um, after this, okay? Unless you want to add something. Um, the direction of where things need to go in psychotherapy is far too important for it to be a, a political uh, or policy decision. It should be a scientific decision in collaboration with clinical observation. The direction of psychotherapy has been determined by what the NIMH feels is important at the time. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, and, and Marshall Linehan is a great ex- example of this. She, Marvin was one of the people who trained Marshall Linehan, who developed uh, dialectic behavior therapy. And we, we were on the committee that funded Marsh's work uh, in the early 80s against some opposition. There were, not everyone wanted to fund it because uh, working with the uh, kinds of problems she was working with was very hard to do. And it was easy to find fatal flaws in her studies. But interestingly, Marsha could not get funded if, she, if the title of the study was Paris Suicide. That's right. She could get funded if the title of the study was Borderline Personality Disorder. And you know why she didn't call it borderline personality disorder? Because she was trained at Stony Brook. Exactly. <laughs> and, so, and, and we were not talking about personality disorders or disorders of any kind. So she was closer to the phenomenon in her labeling. And I think that is the, that is the, the essence. It's once we go into a diagnosis, we're no longer treating the patient and the, the patient's problems. We're, teaching, we're treating a disorder. And some of these disorders are, are ridiculous, like social anxiety, fear of writing in public, public urination, uh, public speaking, and interpersonal anxiety are all under the same category. And the treatments are all different. Well, exactly. they should be at least. So that one of the things to be aware of in, in using the DSM, because people have to use it, and with its limitations, it has purpose. But one of the things to be aware of is that there are fuzzy boundaries separating the disorders so that lots of people have comorbidity. On the other hand, within each definition, there's tremendous heterogeneity. And so people who have the same overall label may, need, may present with radically different symptoms and may need radically different treatments. And so if you understand these limitations, then you're able to use the manual, not misuse it. You're able to realize right. if a person has three diagnoses, that doesn't mean they have three separate problems. You're not going to believe that two people who have the same disorder will necessarily have the same treatment. And that's the beauty of formulation. 
to exactly. take the, the simple labels that go down to the uh, on the patient's record and in the insurance forms, which are general labels, and then figure out how does this precisely apply to this person, yeah. given this person's family history, their life course, their age of onset, the stresses in their lives, to take what's very general in a diagnosis and then make it very specific. Well, it was kind of naive of us to, to think that we were going to cover both uh, diagnosis and case formulation in, in the same discussion. So why don't well, we... But there's one thing think, I, I want... We yeah, have go ahead. A little more time. There's one thing I think... We've touched on this before, but it's really important for people to realize, especially since Tom Insel has just come out with a book. The former director of NIMH has just come out with a book uh, summarizing what he's been saying for years, that he regrets the direction he took the NIMH uh, in a bioreductionistic way. And that we, he, the research that he, he insisted on over his 14 years or whatever it was as director has not held patience. And this goes back to, to Marvin and I and our virtue and our vices that in the early 80s, we were on a small committee at NIMH. And during that time, there was really the first systematic psychotherapy research based on disorders that, that helped to establish uh, behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, dialectic behavior therapy as legitimate subjects for research. And those studies then led to their being seen as legitimate um, subjects for funding. And insurance companies and government agencies throughout the world increased their reimbursement for psychotherapy because of those studies. So this was a great thing that we did. And it was a great thing that NIMH did. That a few, I think it was a few tens of millions of dollars resulted in these therapies now having helped millions and millions of patients. At the same time, NIMH was gradually getting more and more biological. And shortly after we stopped being part of that committee was the decade of the brain in the 1990s. Right. And ever since the 1990s, it's been almost impossible to get a study funded unless it's going to reveal a biological mechanism that fewer than, um, I think it's less than 10% of NIH grants have any clinical meaningfulness and only a tiny percentage are going to be helpful in the next few years. And I say that not a single NIMH study so far has, during this age of biology has helped a single patient, that the brain is so complicated that none of the findings produced, however intellectually interesting, has helped a single patient. So I think it's important for us to understand that psychotherapy is enormously valuable, helping tens of millions of patients around the world but terribly underfunded. Yeah. So listen, now almost nil. We could go on and on, but why don't we put a lid on it for now and continue uh, next week with, with case formulation. But, but on this last point, I think we should end on a more optimistic note. I think picking up from my comment, that, which is what you were talking to, uh, that policymakers should not set the direction because there's too much politics involved, too much of, of the economics involved. They should not set the direction of how we proceed in understanding psychotherapy. I think we need to have researchers together with clinicians and perhaps also with patients because these are the people who are closest uh, to, 
to the phenomenon and perhaps least affected by policy and, and economics. Not totally, but least. Last word. I look forward to next week. Stay safe.